Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, you're listening to Talking Books and I'm Susie Wilde. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books. It's an autumn special tonight, cosy nights by the fire, glass of wine... And some cracking reads. Well, now we don't have a guest on Talking Books this month, so we'll be able to chat a bit more. So why don't you kick off, Tim? I know you've got a lot to get through. Well, yes, I'm, I'm going to talk about some of the books I've been reading at the moment, but other books that I've been reading, I shall slip into different parts of, of what we're talking about. OK. Um... So the book I, that I really enjoyed reading this, this month was The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tiles. Now, he did uh, Gentleman in Moscow, which is completely different from this book. That's about a book about a, uh, a Russian aristocrat stuck in a hotel in, in post-revolutionary Russia. This is about a group of people travelling across America in the 1950s, um, except they start travelling together and, and very quickly things the wheels come off that particular event and things change so it starts like a road trip and then it becomes something much bigger than that so what he does so cleverly is he's a bit like i think he's quite sort of dickensian in the way he takes a he takes these characters that appear along the way and in in a a page or two pages or a paragraph sometimes he absolutely fixes this person's character in your head you know what they what they look like what they feel like you know who they are i think that's a really clever ability that he has as a writer um it's, it's centred around these four unlikely characters who are um, struggling to cope without parental support, basically. That's what links them up. They're all, they're in, all in their different ways are missing uh, the, a key element of their... They're all self 17, 18. A key element of their growing up is missing. And what is the Lincoln Highway? The Lincoln Highway is a road that goes all the way from San Francisco to Times Square in New York. Oh, right across. Right across, right across the sort of top or middle of America. Gosh. Topish. Um, and it was created in the, I think the twenties. It does say in the book. It's it's like some one of those iconic routes, like like Route sixty six in the south. Um, and um, so that's what they they want to travel this route. And and the, our main protagonist uh, has who's got a younger brother, who's who's ten years younger than him. Um, so he's seventeen. He's eighteen, I think, and there's an, an eight year old. Um, but it is it's very moving in, in its way and I and I would recommend it. I know Sally also loved it and on she her did. recommendation I've bought it but I haven't read it yet. Yeah, Sally who's the manager of the shop here she 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 really she raves about this book so yeah. So that was that was one of my reads this month. Um I read Great Circle um by Maggie Shipstead uh which is um and I really have book, and I'm going to talk at great length about that next week when I do book club in the in the shop. So I'm not going to talk any more about okay. that at the moment. But it's basically two parallel narratives: a contemporary one and a story of an of an aviator in the in the sort of first half of the 20th century. That's becoming quite a vogue thing now, isn't it? Having two narrators. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's 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 different because the 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 early one, the bit that's take the aviator. Is written in the third person, and the contemporary bit is written in the first person. Okay. And she she is making a film about about the other, the, that, the other one. So it's and gradually she learns about her life as we do, but in two different time zones, as it were. So it's cl- clever and interesting. Um, Bourneville by Jonathan Coe, which is uh, again another um, a book by an established writer. He did he's did the Rotters Club and. Um, 
several other books. He's, I love Jonathan Kerr. He's um, he's he's one of our one of our really top contemporary writers, I think. And his book is called Bourneville. It's set in that place where they make chocolate in in Birmingham. Do Birmingham. they still make it there? I think it's mainly just a sort of heritage place now. Okay. The, the Cadbury Museum, but I think they do make some things there. Um, it's very much linked around, I suppose appropriately actually, there's a good book to talk about right now, because it's linked around events r- relating to the to the royal family. Mm. So, what, so when is it set? That's part of the question. Is it contemporary or is it going back it, to it when it was founded? It starts in, in VE Day. Okay. And then it goes to, it goes to uh, the coronation. Then it goes to the, the Silver Jubilee, I think. And he always to, gets his timings so right. He, 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 so it, it is it's very much um, a reflection on the Elizabethan era, right. actually. And, and I suppose he probably knew that that was coming to an end when he wrote the book. Um, but it, it's, it's, I mean, it's not a, about um, the Queen. It's about this family. But it's all the key moments in the book, because it, it's set around, I suppose, five set pieces. And all those moments are, are, are moments in the national history but in particularly in the elizabethan era history so it's a very appropriate book to be talking about t- today um but he writes really well uh it's a it's a basically a family saga but it's told as they told through these events um and it's quite it's very very moving in its way actually as well so uh i i would re- rate that and recommend it but that's coming out it's not quite published yet but it's coming out, okay. it's coming out next month i think so that's that's the that's the bulk of my reading this month. How about how so about you, Susie? We'll save the rest. Well, I've gone back because my book's gone off to printers. I've decided to return to my romance. So I've been catching up on loads of romance, and of those, my favourite is the Rome Affair by Karen Swan. And Karen Swan has quite a following, um, and so I put it out there. If anybody wants, particularly in current circumstances, a complete. Um, as I did, I yearned for some degree of escapism that is not slumming. It's She's a very good writer, very accomplished. She does exactly what she sets out to do, mm. which is to give us this feeling of we're on a warm evening in Rome. There's been a past which is actually more like uh, the Vanderbilts or something like that with a mystery. There's always a mysterious element to it on both the protagonist and the mysterious older woman in Rome so and obviously there's love in both so I really enjoyed that um but I've also been catching up very much on cozy crime um so Anthony Horovitch the word is murder which I really enjoyed and that's extraordinary because it's I don't know if you've read it Tim but it's quite postmodern in the the protagonist is someone called Anthony Horovitch who is a writer who has who has written Foil's War for television, etc., etc., who's written uh, Alex Ryder books, i.e. the real Anthony Horovitch, who is married to the director of Foil's War, Jill Green, who he is, etc. But within this, he's contacted by a quite shady detective who wants him to solve the murder with him and note it down and serialise it. So that there's quite clever stuff going on i 
found it a bit odd. It was almost like shifting sands because I wasn't sure which bit was now fiction and which was reality, which I'm not very good at. I like either I want non-fiction or I want fiction. I'm not very good at docudramas on television either for that reason. I want to know... I suppose this is quite... As you say, it's quite It's quite a sort of um, sort of meta, meta-fiction or, or True. in that it's not, it's not trying to be... It's not trying to be non-fiction at all, so it's no. not like a docudrama. No. It's a bit more like um, the trip, the uh, that the the, the, the uh, TV series with Steve Coogan and um, a Welsh and Rob comedian, Bryden. Rob Brydon, uh, which was they were themselves, but they weren't themselves because they were sort of pretending to be, mm. pretending to be a bit more, a bit more perhaps foolish than they actually are. Well, I was thinking in writing <laughs> terms, Saul Bellow, the American writer, did this a long time ago by having an author called Saul Bellow and right. following what he's doing. I remember doing a, doing a Saul Bellow for, for O-Level. Oh, did you? Takes me a you long, see, that long dates back. me and you. Seize the Day was the book we did, that we did. Okay. Nice I, I loved him <laughs> for a while. I nearly did American yeah. literature because of him, but anyway, I'm glad I didn't. Um, but also there's um, a couple of beautifully covered books which are now considered ancient, which is quite funny. The first is Death in a Cold Climate by Robert Barnard and the second is Small Bone Deceased by Michael Gilbert. Um, He's sort of, I suppose, it's said he was writing in the golden age of detective fiction, which was the 1950s. And I dispute that because I'd put it as 20s and 30s. I I think I put it as 30s as well. Yes, Allingham and Agatha Christie et al. But he's a really, really good writer that I had never heard of. Um, but I totally recommend this to people. I'm not even going to say more about it than that. But if you, certainly if you are a fan of the Golden Age and love a really strong narrative voice with humour, it's like PG, somebody described it, is it's like PG Woodhouse meets Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't really get that because PG Woodhouse makes me laugh out loud. But parts of this are droll. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's good. Well, it's good. When you said you were going to talk about um, cosy crime, I did a little bit of research, as you know, as, 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 as I hope you as, might. As, as the professional I am, I would do. <laughs> um, I, I went on the internet and had a little, a little <laughs> shuffle around. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's read somewhere that they described cosy crime as, as uh, where the sex and violence occur off stage. Oh. Um, detective is an amateur sleuth, and the crime and detection take place in a small socially intimate community i think that's a bit a bit precise it's quite limiting um uh, i think i would say where it's it's amusing it's not too gruesome and it's in it's got a pretty setting i think that's probably how i would how i would describe it i'm not Um, sure it even needs to be a pretty setting as long as the emotions aren't too ugly I think that's probably right, yeah. And often a setting where you'd like to be. So even if it's a stark moor or something, sometimes you might feel yeah. like striding around it like Heathcliff. Well, it's interesting that they, somewhere else that I came across, The Guardian did their top ten cosy crime novels. And it, number one was was um, Evil Under the Sun. The ah, Agatha Christie book. yes. Um, uh the Appeal by Janice Hallett, which is, which is Hallett a very is recent, definitely recent novel. Mentioned, yeah. um, what I would call the quintessence coming up is Agatha Raisin and the Quiche of Death by M.C. Beaton, which is, so, I mean, it's summed up in the title. It's, you're not going to take this too seriously, is what, is what it, it's saying to you. Um, and it features a, a fantastic tooth. I think they did, they did them on television, actually, these at some stage. I'm not sure they really nailed it. 
Um, but I think the the uh, the idea that you have a you know she's a, she's an amateur sleuth and and um, it's something quite silly and 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 funny, but it's still murder, you know. So that that's um, Dorothy L. Sayers is strong poison, as mentioned. Oh, I love Dorothy L. Sayers. Yeah, I do like her, but I haven't read that one. Um, Brat Farrar by Josephine Tay. Oh, I don't know that one in particular. Um, mentions your your man Horowitz. Uh, the oh. mag- magpie murders. Okay, it mentions those as, yeah, as it's number, good. number six. Thursday Murder Club, of course. Right. Um, well, I'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, that's yeah. coming up. Carry yeah, on. That's the, he's the man of the moment, Richard Osman. I'm sucking um, my teeth here. Uh, another a book that you've talked about before, the Three Pines series um, oh, by Louise Penny. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and although I think that you know it's, it is slightly different, it's got a serious detective and it's got and it's it's properly it's strong emotion, quite strong stuff going on. Mm. But he says the the writer of this piece, who's who is. Um, uh, S.J. Bennett, who's a children's writer, said that what defines Louise Penny's Three Pine series is this the essential goodness of the community, um, the warm relationship t- between Gamash, his friends and family, that, that, that is a sort of underpinning it, even though gruesome things might be happening, they're, they're happening within a structure which is essentially comfortable. And it conforms to what I've just said, interestingly, is a place where you'd really like to be yourself. Right. You want it to be real. Right. Is that it? No, there was another one called Hollywood Homicide by Kelly Garrett, which I hadn't oh, I don't heard know of. that at all. But um, I'm surprised Ellie Griffith isn't on it. That's why I'm no. asking. So the last one he talks about is Murder Most Unladylike by Robin Stevens. She is yeah. a children's writer. Yeah. Um, and uh, designed for some, what they call middle grade fiction, which is sort of 10 to 12 year olds. And it features two 1930s schoolgirls, Daisy Wells and, and Hazel Wong, who solve crimes in a... Uh, in a setting that's sort of quite appropriate for that for that age range, um, so it's like Mystery of the Burnt Cottage by Enid Blyton. Or well, I suppose like so. That. It's con- it's written contemporarily, uh, okay. so it's got a bit more, bit, perhaps a bit I more thought you edge said to 1930s. it. No, it's it's set in the thirties, but it's oh. written now. Yes, the, the Robin Stevens is a writer. Yes, but that's what um, I mean. There's yeah. so she's it's a pastiche of. Yes. I should say that's of, right. It's it's um, Daisy pulls it off and yeah, all yeah, those, yeah, that, all like that. that play that yeah this chap. Uh, S.J. Bennett was saying that that you know people mob her at uh, signings because they you know they're really you know they thought they've really emotionally oh, attached to these books. It's not once again we come back to this concept that that the best writing for children is not for children, just for children. It's for everybody. Yeah. Um, and so I, I must I must have a read of that. But yes, anyway, that was, no, I, that's interesting. That was a, that's the that's the Guardian's top. And 10, we'll definitely put on. all those books I think on the website. So if anyone didn't catch the titles, just just check um, sure. under this month's talking books. Well, I don't know if you saw Tim, but um, triumphantly. In uh, the Sunday Times culture section, there's a whole piece by one of my heroines, Joan Smith, who actually, I don't know how long she's been doing it, but she's been a critic of crime in the Times for quite a while now. Right. Um, I think of her very contemporaneously with Sarah Waters. I don't know if that's fair or not, but they both seem to rise to prominence at a similar time. But she does say something about... um, There is nothing wrong with cosy crime, which has a distinguished pedigree going back to the 1920s. Osman, for it is he we are talking about, 
has been credited with reviving the genre, but there are more accomplished modern exponents such as Janice Hallett or even Richard Coles, who we mentioned recently. Um, Cozy Crime is anyway a misnomer. The best examples are deadly serious, as Christie indicated when she characterised murder as the worst crime imaginable. Nothing could be further from the whimsical musings of the Thursday Murder Club, which constantly pivot away from anything resembling strong emotions. Osman's characters are a famous four whose jolly japes could and probably will fill several more volumes. Yeah, I disagree about not, not uh, engaging emotions. I think, I think he does. I think he does it really well, actually. I think there's a... Uh, Which emotions? Well, I think um, sympathy for... Um, for, for the main, what the main protagonist, um, Elizabeth, and her husband, who is suffering from dementia, um, and we really feel for her. In, oh, in, you in mean that. he's evoked it in us rather than the characters showing strong emotion? I think there's character emotion as well, but but I mean that's you know that. But I think it it certainly gets has an emotional reaction to the reader. Uh, I think I think they're very engaging. I think they're funny, and I think the the characters that he creates, we really like them. They're not you know that the. I'm not saying that you have to like your characters because I don't think that's the case at all. But one of the things about his characters is that we do we do really feel um, we understand them and and feel for them. I think I suspect so. we need to like the characters in fiction such as that. Actually, yeah. I think you need a hook um, yeah. to keep you reading. But she also, she begins, and this is, I'm just going to read it because I'm not saying this is right, that Joan Smith is right, but she so accurately says how I feel, better than I expressed it before. No doubt Richard Osman's third novel, The Bullet That Missed, will soon be climbing those charts. Like the earlier books in the Thursday Murder Club series, it features four amateur detectives living in an upmarket retirement village in Kent, where they supposedly defy stereotypes about age by solving cold case murders. It is a device that Osman has used repeatedly, milking the idea that it is disconcerting to hear elderly people airily discuss knife wounds or bitcoin. Yet his habit of patting his characters on the head for knowing about cryptocurrency is as patronising as the assumptions he claims to be challenging. Agatha Christie invented Miss Marple almost a century ago. So it's been done when the boundaries between the generations were still firmly in place. But there is no longer anything shocking about a woman in her 70s keeping up with current affairs. She's probably running the country. One of the perks of being a book reviewer is being able to read novels before they are published. And then she explains why she didn't review the first book, did the second because it had become a press sensation by then, and she feels this is worse. So the latest novel, which is nominally an investigation into the long-ago murder of a local TV reporter, is even more detached from reality than the previous two. A minor character from an earlier book is now in a women's prison awaiting trial and has an espresso machine in her cell and receives weekly deliveries of able and cold vegetable boxes. It does, however, contain a spectacular giveaway in the shape of an observation well, from another minor character. I won't say okay, what it is, and she doesn't say what it is, just that it exists, which is absolutely fine. So um, she's, he says that they carry a kind of magic. And I think, and the reason why I'm ponderous about this, is I think that we know our demographic in Petersfield. They are people, as I've said before, who are like me, very much of that age, who take great 
I, I, I view it as an insult that we would be so stupid. And so these dear old souls, you know, bless them for knowing this sort of stuff. It's just rubbish. And I think it's really poorly written. And loads of people, agents I've talked to and so on, have said that if such as us had written it and it had arrived on their slush pile, it would never have seen the light of day had it not been written by Richard mm. Osman. I'm not sure I agree with you, Susie. Actually. I'm sure, I uh, hope you don't. <laughs> I, I think, uh, certainly the first one, when I read it, I was genuinely surprised at the style and the... and. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a great reader of, of of cozy crime generally, but I read this and I thought, wow, that's I'm really engaged by this. I really I find it funny, I find it engaging and um, I really enjoyable. And I'm just currently reading the third one at the moment because because like your the reviewer, I, they they sneak out an early copy for me, um, and um, I'm enjoying it as much as ever. But I, Are maybe, you? I maybe I'm easily I'm easily um, entertained. Well, we know you're I'm not. Sure. So that really interests me. But I, I love that there is difference. And I think it's important to air both sides, though, sure. because I have heard from a lot of people that they feel that there's a problem with them because they haven't enjoyed it very much. And I think, well, it's, I think it's always the case that, that no one book is going to is, is going to be enjoyed by everybody in the same to the same degree. I thank think. goodness. But for some people, I can see that it, they might find it a little bit patronising. They might find it a little bit um, sentimental. And a little bit trite at times. Because you could say the same about Richard Coles, that it's because it's Richard Coles that he's been published. But I really enjoyed that. It's still simple, it's not demanding, but it's pretty well written. I think the conclusion, whether we both did, I, I do remember I certainly said that like all debut novels, he's trying a bit hard. He doesn't trust himself to entertain the reader. But he, I feel, will get better and better the more books he writes. But I think many people have agreed that with the Richard Osman it isn't. Anyway, Tim, we've mentioned your book club. Is there anything else you've got on or that you've been to while you've been on holiday and so on that well, there are is a few, bookish? There are, a few, there are a few more things. Uh, 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 there's something big, a couple of big things coming along shortly. Um, we're going to do... We're going to be having... Uh, a, a big local author coming to talk about their autobiography. Oh, um, we allowed to say who yet? Um, it, it's Hugh Bonneville, ah. and so we're going to do a we're going to do a special event here, book launch for him, uh, with limited numbers of people. The other thing is that we're, we're doing is we're doing a big event with the repair shop um, at the repair shop oh. uh, in uh, the Wilden Downham Museum. So um, I know it well on the same night, which is you know, on the, one of those things that happens. It's just not much you can do about it. That's on the thirteenth of October. So, uh, but there, there will be more about about both shortly. Excellent! So. Oh, that would be really exciting. Well, I'm doing a course at the Wheel of Diamond. Um, as it happens this week, are you, are you repairing anything, Susan? I'm not you? repairing anything. Okay. Um, I'm going to find out. My watch has stopped recently. I wonder if you could, ha- you could have, <laughs> a, have a go at it. If only I can lend you one. I've got hundred. On Thursday, I'm learning about magical protection in homes because it's a bit late. Because I've got I'm, landfall. My third book is full of it, but um, I did research it. But it just struck me as something that would be really interesting to find out the truth. Right. And I bet my imagination, this is, happens all the time, and I speak to other historical authors, that when you're really in that world and really trying hard to write it, your imagination produces things that fact then turns out to be true. 
So I've got that. Also, last time we interviewed Catherine McInnes, she was going on to the Oates Museum a week or so after that was published, that edition was published. And she gave the most splendid talk. Uh, um, it was absolutely fascinating. And there must have been 70 or 80 people there who were riveted. And what we obviously couldn't give you at home via radio was the fantastic slideshow that she also had there. And because of scale and the clarity of the images, suddenly so much of it completely came to life to, to see the emotions on these women's faces and so on. It was, it was wonderful. And as you will have heard, though, Catherine is so enthusiastic about her subject and that really came across well. So if you spot that she's doing an event in London or something ever, I really recommend going because you'll just get so much out of it. And the book is so dense that you will not, I promise you, have taken it all in. You there and, and you can ask questions so there's lots of, just to say about the book there are lots of photographs in the book oh yes so, there are um so you can you can spot these the, but you know it was women. so funny i spoke to sally about it that you find yourself doing the sort of pinch expand thing on a book and you think no no this is a book this is a photograph <laughs> it's not like, like a small child of the television that's ridiculous yeah. And then, um, just very briefly, I'm going to the Charleston Fall Small Wonder Festival, uh, mostly because Elizabeth Garner, who you'll all know now, is her, is my editor, my main creative editor. Um, she's an award-winning author, author of Lost and Found, which is a treasure trove of folk tales. So, again, I absolutely love the Mabinogion and other folk tales. Um, but she's joined by travel writer Nicholas Jubber. Who has got a local connection as well. We've had it, has he's he? been into the shop before now. Has he? I don't yeah. know him. He's uh, he's married to somebody who came from around here. That that's the connection. And Zoe Gilbert. Do we any local connections with Zoe Gilbert? I don't know. Oh, we can invent Sorry. One. Whose first novel, Folk, was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize. He's not local either. He isn't, but he's Welsh, so you know. <laughs> was the tenuous connection with me so that oh, there's also earlier in the day i missed this but sort of carrying on our theme there's a marple event so our pal kate moss um the prolific kate moss is has written a short story a marple short story going within this collection which i'd quite like to read actually but there's lucy foley jean Quock, and ruth ware who've can also contributed a brand new story. I think there are 12. Yes. And they're all, there are, are they? And they're yeah. all marples. So, but they've all apparently written them in this, not necessarily in their own style, but certainly in the era in which they've placed, or even the country in which they've placed their fiction. So that could be quite So talking talking of crime, I mean, you, 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 were, you mentioned uh, to me about the fact that... Uh, about what who are my favourite crime authors? Yes, um, and I was just just and I don't. It's not really a genre that is my uh, my absolute go to genre. I would have to say, um, but uh, I was just reading one recently uh, by Abia Mukherjee. I don't know if you've come across no a rising man, uh, which is set in just after the First World War in Calcutta, and it is about a young youngish. Um, Detective from from Scotland Yard who's gone to the front in the First World War, um, ended up as a, as a captain, but but quite traumatised by by the by the whole thing. Tries to go back to work in London, can't do it, and 
he ends up in in Calcutta because a previous boss has said he he, he knows he's really good and he, he wants to employ him out there, and he gets stuck into into immediately into a very important political murder case, and um, so there's, there's a lot about the politics of Calcutta and Bengal generally in the in the twenties. Um, and when when revolution was in you know in ferment and uh, things were really kicking off uh, in Bengal at that time, uh, but it, it it's a, so it's a it's a really interesting book about place and about and about a particular time in history, and the actual detective work, whilst interesting and uh, it is not the key part of the book, but it's the first in a series. It's done about it's done about three or four now, I think. You see, maybe that's what I love about detective fiction. Let's call it that more than crime, because I hate true crime. I just can't read it. But that actually really top detective fiction totally puts you in a place and time. That's what I think it should do. So that sounds fascinating. Mm. Uh, another another one of my f- uh, f- favourite uh, detective-style writers is Susie Steiner, who died recently, actually. Yes. Um, but she wrote a, a, a series of books, and I can't think who the protagonist is, but it's a woman detective who's a junior detective in the first book. She's a, uh, she gradually gets promoted as the books go on. The book called Missing Presumed, and we get a lot about her. So it's not, it's not a lot about the actual detective work. It's a lot about her and her, her thinking and her, her feelings about what's going on. So I think that's where I think it's where I find detective crime interesting. Where is where you actually you know get quite a lot more than just plain detective work. I, the, the simple detective work doesn't really give me that much interest. Although procedural, you know, yeah, procedural. Mm. I think and they're mm. too too procedural. Yeah. Um, but having said that, it's all in the writing. Yeah. Good writer can do whatever, do anything with a with with a, with a with their um, with their story and get away with it. And I know you're going to talk about Dick Francis later on and. Mm. Um, and again, I wouldn't really call that. I'd call that more mystery, mystery thriller. But they are crime, really, because there is a crime at the heart of Always. the story. Um, yeah. And you don't, but you don't have the same protagonist. Each protagonist is called something different, but they're actually all the same. <laughs> they're all the same ex-jockey. Um, and uh, I loved reading these when I was a teenager. I read all the Dick Francis. I read all the when I read all the Agatha Christies at the same that sort of yeah, that sort too. of age. And um, I really absolutely love these love these stories. I did try and read and reread one <laughs> quite recently. I found pretty unsophisticated, I have to say, and uh, maybe maybe they they work best when they're read by somebody young. Maybe I don't know. So I think it's time for our what's coming up, Tim. And I bet there are lots, aren't there? Yes, Lessons by Ian McEwan, which is published this week. So that's um, that's quite exciting. It's his first big book for some time, and he's done since he did um, Saturday. He's done several short books, Chesil Beach, um, being one of the, one of the more successful ones, but lots of quite short books and and Solo, which is a long but 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 quite slight. This is a really big book in in more ways than one. It's a sort of. Uh, Biography, really, autobiography of himself. Um, although the key, the key, uh, it's not. He doesn't call himself Ian McEwan in the book. <laughs> he calls himself something different. And also, the key element in the story definitely didn't happen to him. He's very great pains to say that this did not happen to me. And this this event, which I won't talk about, defines him throughout throughout the rest of his life and his career. And this protagonist is distinctly, in contrast to Ian McEwan, he's not. Hugely successful Booker Prize winning 
uh, author. He's he's he he goes down a different different pathway, but a lot of this character is is Ian McEwan. I, I gather from reading reviews and interviews that he's done since since um, the book was. So it's almost launched. the path not travelled, isn't yes. it? Yes. Which... Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and um, because I think his the parents in the book, the parents of, of the protagonist, are very much his parents. Um, but what happens from then on is different. So it's kind of quite interesting. And he did end up. He did go to a to a uh, his his father was a uh, working class soldier who became a an officer after the war uh, and was a distinctly tricky character to say to say the least. Um, and he ended up going being sent away to a a uh, state boarding school because uh, his father was away overseas. So that much is true. The rest of it isn't true. So um, interesting book. A lot of big names have come out with books this that are coming yeah. out. Robert Harris has got his new book out, Acts of Oblivion, which is set during the uh, restoration of King Charles II. Again, appropriately, sort of, appropriately enough. Again. Um, and it's, a, it's about the hunt for the people who signed the death warrant of his father, Charles I. Um, because when he came back after the when he was invited back to be king after the death of Cromwell, um, he said, right, everyone is forgiven for everything they've done in the last, you know, whatever it is, 15, 20 years, since since uh, all the Civil War stuff. But the people from... who signed the death warrant for, for, for dear daddy are going to get it in the neck. Literally. And Yeah. Our two main protagonists are two colonels in the, in the um, Cromwell, Cromwellian army, who signed the death warrant and have escaped and they've arrived in America but they're after them and um, so there's a, there's a basically a, a manhunt across America for these these two it's people. had brilliant reviews uh, it, I think I've, only, I've read the first they sent me a taster taster 100 pages of this book which oh. I read and really enjoyed and I'm desperate to read the rest of it so um, I do like him as a writer um, Ben McIntyre has written a book on Colditz um, and now you think, well, I have, you know, people yes, of our generation, Susie, who who uh, who who watched the Colts on the TV series. Um, it was in there was one in two thousand and five, but there was also one in the seventies, which probably you remember. Yes, I remember uh, the seventies. Well, it was actually. on before Monty Python <laughs> on the same evening. Um, and it was it it was one it was apparently at the time it was the most watched television series ever on the BBC. Mm. So it speaks to a uh, a memory folk memory of, of, of the Second World War amongst um, not really our generation but our generation's parents mm. and that we grew up with we grew up with these endless war films on telly uh, war stories war magazines war this still war that still have them and it's, it's still out there but it was particularly prevalent I would say in that, in that period there was a board game Escape from Colditz which again I remember playing back in the you know, back in the day um, but in 2005, Damien Lewis did a mini, another mini-series on, on telly. Um, so it's, it's absolutely... We think we know everything there is to know about Colts. And what Ben McIntyre has done is he's actually said, well, actually, no. What you thought you knew is not the case. Most people in Colts were not English. <laughs> they were Poles, <laughs> they were... You know, all, they, were, they were French, they, were, they, they, they weren't English. Um, there was this... It was a symptomatic of the of the class divide in the country at the time. There were the people who cleaned the shoes, the English soldiers, who cleaned the shoes of the British officers. 
and also had to clean the shoes of and, and look after the German officers. So there was all sorts of stuff going on. Also, up the road from Kolditz, in Kolditz village, there was a concentration camp, a small one uh, where where well it was a it was a it was slave labour factory basically, where uh, people were worked to death, and and hundreds and hundreds died. So the the real story of Kolditz is is darker, broader, more interesting. And um, and Ben McIntyre, who's written lots of really good books on on recent history, mm-hmm. um, Spy and the Traitor, and several others. Is is a real is a real master at this. He mm. really knows what he's doing. He's a journalist, mm. uh, and so he he knows how to make it good. He knows does how to make and it pacey. make it readable, pacey, yeah. and, and interesting. Yeah. So that's going to be a huge seller, I think, mm. this Christmas. Um, Charlie's Good Tonight, the biography of Charlie Watts, is just oh, just yeah. out. Yeah, um, he drew every hotel room he stayed in. Didn't really, he? Mm. Uh, Taste by Stanley Tucci's just come out in paperback. It's basically a memoir, but it, in food, mm-hmm. and that's been been big. This is the night they come for you, Robert Goddard. Uh, we've mentioned that when it came out in Harbour. I read it a while ago, um, but that's an absolute. Uh, so it's a, it's a cracking thriller set in France and Algeria, um, and um, I really really enjoy reading that. On a different different note, there's and finally by Henry Marsh. He's the neurosurgeon who's written several books about the brain, um, and he's written about about neurosurgery and all sorts of stuff but he then just quite recently had got a diagnosis of, of advanced cancer and he's written this book which is sort of meditation on life and death and and understanding as he does how the brain kind of works mm. to a certain extent as much as any of us understand it and like um, most doctors i know absolutely refuses that there could be anything wrong with him yes yeah so it, it but he's a very uh humane writer oh, and i nice think that'll well. be a yeah. that'll, uh, that's a Another really interesting book. I've read a bit of that, and it does mm-hmm. seem really interesting. Mm-hmm. So, that, sorry that to go on for quite a long time. No, but that, that is was, what is coming up. That's what, there's just what, a lot. There's just a lot out there. A lot out there. there. It's all ramping up for Christmas, yeah. isn't it? So, and publishers do this every every mm-hmm. year. They bring out all their big books at the same time, and the, mm-hmm. and the papers can't really give them the review space that they deserve. Bookshops can't give them the space they deserve, but they just do it because they know that that's when books sell. So, um, absolutely, that's tough. Well, I'm coming out in January. What does that tell you? Well, that's it's good. There'll be lots of space for reviews, Susie. That's, that's always the positive way of looking at it. That's why they're doing it. So now we're on to the backlisted thing, which, as Tim has said, um, my backlisted choice is Whip Hand by Dick Francis. Now, I don't know why. What I always love to do is just sort of consider for the backlisted choice. I let my hand almost make the decision. And just before the Queen died, I had found myself looking at whip hand because it's one of those things i have too many books we all have too many books and i keep trying to sort of shed them and over the years like you i had read every dick francis and if i love an author i have to actually have the books it's now that i'm a grown-up um and can afford to have them so at some stage i must have bought them and also was often given them as a Christmas present because they did used to pop out every Christmas, like you're saying, every autumn the latest Dick Francis would come out. But I've whittled them down to about three over the years, but I find that my Sid Halley's I am completely incapable of throwing away. I've got this deep 
deep love of the Sid Halley books. This book, Whip Hand, was published in 1979. It's because he was so keen on the television series um, that had come out some years before. So the, the book is dedicated to Mike Gwillim, actor, and Jackie Stoller, producer, because they made the Sid Halley series on the BBC and I really like that the way that they took a book that they loved made it television and Dick Francis had said it's going to be standalone but was so inspired so, so by what it. was the book that, that the Sid Halley series was based on uh the racing game I think it's called you've put me on the spot I'm pretty I certain it's the one. racing game but that was that was a long time previous to that and one of the things I love about Sid Halley is that I just love him as a character because he he's obviously a jockey because that's what Dick Francis knows. So we're totally in the head of somebody who has who's done it, who's been there. And there is no self-pity. So although a horse has fallen on his hand and completely trashed it so that he actually has to have an electronic arm, really arm and hand, um, that he works with synoptic impulses, which must have been quite something in the early 70s. Goodness. Um, he really just gets on with life, just crack on. And yet there is yearning. So certainly in his dreams and so on, he does. Now, one of the things I agree with you at, that sometimes, you know, nev- never go back and eat a cold dinner. I don't like revisiting, unless they're total classics, like Bleak House or something, I or Jane Austen, I hardly ever go back, Middlemarch, and read something I've loved. But I was really pleasantly surprised when I've gone back to Whip Hand, because although it has taken up shelf space ever since 1979, I have never reread it. And one of the things I love, that I think is actually just good writing, whichever way you look at it, and I love the economy of it. It's limpid writing. You just slop through it. He's not um, a stylist. He's just telling it. And I particularly love this bit um, because this is something... It's my little tribute to the Queen, if you like. She would also have loved this. She would have also have been in this sort of situation. So if we imagine this is Sid Halley... He's on a case, but the case doesn't matter really because in this way he's back in his milieu where he loves. Armed with race glasses on a strap round my neck, I walked along to Warren Hill at 7.30 in the morning to watch the strings out at morning exercise. A long time, it seemed, since I'd been one of the tucked-up figures in sweaters and skullcap with three horses to muck out and care for and a bed in a hostel with rain-soaked breeches forever drying on an error in the kitchen frozen fingers and not enough baths, ears full of four-letter words and no chance of being alone. I had enjoyed it all well enough when I was 16 on account of the horses, beautiful, marvellous creatures whose responses and instincts worked on a plane as different from humans as water and oil, not mingling even where they touched. Insight into their senses and consciousness had been like an opening door, a foreign language glimpsed and half-learned, full comprehension maddeningly balked by not having the right sort of hearing or sense of smell, nor sufficient skill in telepathy. The feeling of oneness with horses I'd sometimes had in the heat of a race had been their gift to an inferior being, and maybe my passion for winning had been my gift to them. 
The urge to get to the front was born in them. All they needed was to be shown where and when to go. It could fairly be said that, like most jump jockeys, I had aided and abetted horses beyond the bounds of common sense. The smell and sight of them on the heath was like a sea breeze to a sailor. I filled my lungs and eyes and felt content. Each exercise string was accompanied and shepherded by its watchful trainer, some of them arriving in cars, some on horseback, some on foot. I collected a lot of, "'Good morning, Sid's!' Several smiling faces seemed genuinely pleased to see me, and some that weren't in a hurry stopped to talk. "'Sid!' exclaimed one I'd ridden on the flat for in the years before my weight caught up with my height. "'Sid, we don't see you up here much these days!' "'My loss,' I said, smiling." Why don't you come and ride out for me? Next time you're here, give me a ring and we'll fix it. Do you mean it? Of course I mean it, if you'd like to, that is. I'd love it. Right, that's great. Don't forget now. He wheeled away, waving to shout to a lad earning his disfavour by slopping in the saddle like a disorganised jellyfish. How the bloody hell do you expect your horse to pay attention if you don't? The boy sat decently for all of twenty seconds. He'd go far, I thought, starting from Newmarket Station. So in that writing, I was totally in that moment with him, both with the people, but also a tiny glimpse of what his life had been when he was 16 in all of three or four lines. And I felt it was completely authentic. And in the context of the book, none of it's actually wasted because it does... um, it does have a lot to do with what's going on in the main plot of where the crime mm-hmm. is, but there's all this other stuff. So where this book is concerned, I don't think you would be disappointed. There's too much to read in the world. I'm not suggesting everybody should go back, but I really, if nobody has read Dick Francis out there, or if you're certainly teenage, absolutely give it a whirl. Um so, yeah, that's my backlisted choice. Thank okay. you, Susie. And uh, as usual, you know where to find us uh, in podcast. You can, can look at all the old editions of Talking Books. And we'll see you next month. That will be brilliant, Tim. Thank you. And if you want the titles of any of the things we've mentioned and you haven't jotted them down, they will all be written on the website. So that's it till next month. You have been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, and produced by John Wellsman. When you listen to Petersfield's Shine Radio, the children of Sheet Primary School will keep you on time. It's 16 minutes to 7. It's quarter past 5. Through the day, every day, their young voices keep Petersfield running like clockwork. It's 27 minutes to 12. It's half past 6. Shine Time is sponsored by Pickets and Purses for the timeless beauty of new and vintage jewellery in Petersfield. It's 29 minutes to 3. Shine Time, only from Petersfield's Shine Radio. Mm-hmm.